Alright, hello and welcome to the first ever episode of God Save the Queers. I'm your host, Wes. I use he, him pronouns. So let's talk about that for a little bit. I feel like everybody should start using pronouns in their bios and introductions. Even if you're not trans, I feel like the idea of normalizing, introducing yourself with pronouns is helpful to people because it normalizes going by different pronouns and it also normalizes people not having to assume your pronouns and it's an easy way for people to assert the pronouns they use without having to feel weird about it because I know it can be weird to correct people and things like that so yeah it's easy it's an easy fix guys just put your pronouns in your bios then to your emails in introductions it's you know it takes a a second longer to introduce yourself, but I think that's a sacrifice we can all make. So, what is this podcast about? Well, I started God Save the Queers because, well, a lot of people are starting sourdough bread and kombucha and stuff like that during quarantine, but I've been getting by on podcasts, and they've been a complete lifesaver to me. So, I decided that I wanted to use a podcast as a platform to talk about things that I think are important, and I think it's crucial, especially now, when there's a lot of turbulence and everything's all up in the air, that people have support and people feel like they can relate to other people, and I wanted to start God Save the Queers to give history lessons about, you know, historical figures from history that were LGBTQ and show people that there have been queer people around for a long time doing great things. The second part of this is I want it to be kind of an interview series where I talk with LGBT people today, you know, people doing great things right now. I want people to listen to their stories and help them get inspired and feel, you know, like there's someone out there like them. I was talking to a friend the other day, and they were saying to me that when they first considered getting top surgery, they had never seen a person with their body type out there who had gotten top surgery and they hadn't seen the results and it kind of prevented them from getting top surgery earlier and I thought well I mean I'm sure there are people out there like them who have gotten surgery and it's gone great so it's just a matter of having that representation and that presented to you in an accessible way. I really want this to used as a platform to show that like you don't have to be an Instagram influencer, you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to have a six pack, you don't have to be a musician or an artist. You can literally be whatever career path you choose and still be a valid and successful queer person. Um, and I think that's really, really important. So um, with that being said, uh, I want this podcast format to be my goal is bi-weekly, but I'm not sure if that's going to actually fly um, with my time commitment and everything. So I'm setting that goal for myself, um, and I want the podcast to consist of the two different types of interviews. So one will be a historical podcast, just talking about a historical queer figure, and then the other will be an interview series of me talking with other people about things that are important to them and the work that they're doing. The first episode, I decided I would talk about Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, which, if you're familiar with the Stonewall Riots at all and the gay liberation movement, you probably know a lot about them, but I think that they're two very important figureheads to cover initially because they're basically the mother of all trans people and gay rights. And I want to take a second to thank you guys for 
being here with me when I lose my podcast virginity. Um, I never expected to lose it in front of this many people, but to the three of you listening, thank you. So let's talk Marsha P. Johnson. Marsha was born on August 24th, 1945, which, not trying to brag, but we have the same birthday, Virgo season, you know, if you care about natal charts, which I feel like if you're queer, you need to because, like, the first preliminary queer dating requirement is to share your natal chart with someone because I guess if the stars aren't aligned, y'all aren't going to be together, so I personally don't really buy into that, but if you have any experience with it and believe that it works, please enlighten me because I'm always open to hearing new ideas. I certainly don't have all the answers. So, Marsha was born in Elizabeth, New Jersey, to Alberta Claiborne and Malcolm Michael Sr., who was an assembly worker at General Motors. Um, A lot of people during those days worked in factories. Horrible, horrible conditions. Um, There are books and books about it. In fact, Detroit, I Do Mind Dying is a book that I recently read about the Detroit factories, um, and it's horrific. So if you want to learn more about, you know, the working conditions during those times, you can definitely find books like that, about that. Um, Marsha's family was very, very Catholic, and because of that, they did not take to her wanting to dress effeminate and dress up in dresses well at all. In fact, her mother often referred to homosexuals as being lower than dogs. So you can understand why she was reluctant to come out and share that part of herself with her family. Uh, She did not actually come out or even have any relationships until after she was living by herself in New York City. In regards to her gender identity, it kind of flip-flops. She didn't really have a set um, term that she used to describe herself. The term transgender wasn't really commonplace back then, so the reason that her name is Marsha Payette No Mind Johnson, actually, is that when people would ask her if she was a man or a woman, she would say, Payette No Mind, like it's none of your business. Um, But she can probably most accurately be described as gender nonconforming, as she self-identified as gay, a transvestite, a queen, and that would change from day to day. Sometimes she would go out in masculine clothes, sometimes feminine clothes, And when I say masculine and feminine clothes, I mean what society has deemed masculine and feminine. Obviously, clothes don't have a gender. Now, let's introduce you a little bit to Sylvia Rivera, who is sort of like her counterpart in the gay liberation movement. Sylvia was born July 2nd, 1951, in New York City, to a father who abandoned her when she was born, and a mother who committed suicide when she was three. So she was ultimately left to be raised by her grandmother, who disapproved of her feminine behavior, and she found herself living on the streets at the age of 11. She worked as a child prostitute. I love how Wikipedia, where I got this information from, says she worked as a child prostitute. She was forced into child prostitution because she had no other means of survival, is what I mean. She was actually semi-saved by the drag queen community, who accepted her and helped her get by and kind of gave her a better life. She was still homeless, but she was living with a group of people who cared about her, so it helped her out a little bit. She self-identified as a drag queen and called herself a half-sister, but maintained that her gender and sexuality were fluid throughout her life. So here you have these two amazing women who are very progressive in how they think about gender and sexuality 
in the early 60s, this was kind of unheard of. So it, it was very interesting and great that they were able to find each other and start this movement together. So you have this group of people, drag queens and gay men and all these people who are coming together and they're not even supposed to be outside. It's illegal at this point to dress in drag. It's illegal for gay men to go into bars. Um, so before we talk about Stonewall, let's go back and talk about what it was illegal to dress in drag. It was illegal to wear certain clothes. Yeah, it was. And um, I got this information from history.com. But apparently there was a rule. It was often referred to as the three-piece rule. So this is like one of those old-timey rules where the state originally intended the law of cross-dressing to punish farmers who had taken to dressing like Native Americans to fight off tax collectors. But, you know, as time progresses, people bend the laws to fit whatever they needed to fit at the time. So at the beginning of the 20th century, the law kind of transformed into policing gender identities and clothing choices, and it was increasingly used to persecute people who were dressed in drag, and being gay and dressing in drag at the time was considered a sickness and a public offense. So there was this lovely little bar called the Stonewall Inn, and if you've ever been to New York, it is still open, it's great, they still do drag shows, they still are very, very vocal about gay rights, queer rights. Um, so this was actually a bar that was run by the mafia, and they were able to pay off the police to let the gay patrons come in and use the bar to hang out, socialize, but... Um, you know, as, as a lot of mafia-related things go, and a lot of things that are flying under the police's radar, they ended up getting raided. So on the early hours of June 28, 1969, someone, we don't know who, threw a brick at a cop, and that sparked the Stonewall riots. And that lasted all through the night. There were people burning police cars, just there was like havoc in the streets. All of the people in the gay bar were fighting back against this raid. And the very next day, the gay liberation movement started. So we have all those gay men and all those drag queens to thank for starting basically what was the first kickoff of the rights that we have today. So as the gay liberation movement started to actually make waves, Marsha and Sylvia noticed that although there were lesbians and, and gay men fighting for their own rights, a lot of people forgot about the T in LGBT. So there weren't a lot of people proactively trying to help trans youth and trans people. So Sylvia and Marsha started a group called STAR, which stands for Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, and they just wanted to show the world that trans people were human beings. They initially started in a parking lot, and they wanted to function as a shelter and social space for trans sex workers and other LGBT street youth. Eventually, the parking lot became too small and wasn't a great place to hold these meetings and shelter people, so they ended up actually getting a place on 2nd Street. And they afforded the rent by doing sex work at night to help pay for these homeless youth to live there, which I think is an incredibly noble act. Things were going great. They were, they're great activists. They're continuously fighting for rights. So remember, the Stonewall riots were in 1969. Fast forward to 1973. Sylvia and Marsha were told that the drag queens, the trans people, were going to stand at the front of the 1973 Gay Pride March. They were supposed to lead the march, but they ended up getting put towards the very back and kind of just shoved out of the way. Rightfully so, they thought that 
they were the ones who started the movement. Like, hey, we're the ones who initiated this pushback at Stonewall, and why don't we get better representation? Why don't we have our rights? Sylvia was very upset by this, and she actually went up on stage. She'd been trying all day to get up on the stage. I don't know if you've ever been to New York Pride, but basically, it's a march. So you start you start a couple streets back, wherever you start, wherever you start, basically. People come from all over, and you just kind of join the march as it goes. And it kind of culminates in this crowd, and there's a stage, and there are performances and speeches. So after the march was over, after they had gotten there, there's people who are giving speeches about gay rights, liberation, there's performances. It's a, it's a big thing. It's almost like a concert. And Sylvia had been trying all day to get up on stage to talk about how she felt they had been treated unfairly. And she finally gets up on stage. And I'm just going to read a small excerpt from the beautiful speech that she gave. But I feel like she points out a couple of really, really important things. The women have tried to fight for their sex changes or to become women. They do not write women. They do not write men. They write star because we're trying to do something for them. I have been to jail. I have been raped and beaten many times by men, heterosexual men, that do not belong in the homosexual shelter. But do you do anything for me? No. You tell me to go and hide my tail between my legs. I will not put up with this shit. I have been beaten. I have had my nose broken. I have been thrown in jail. I have lost my job. I have lost my apartment for gay liberation. And you all treat me this way? What the fuck's wrong with you all? Think about that. So she brings up a really good point that... A lot of the gay rights movement, once the white privileged gay people got their rights and were able to do what they wanted, they kind of forgot that there were other people left at the wayside who still were fighting. It was an, it was an incredible injustice. And I, I watched a documentary called The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, and it's, it's on Netflix if you want to watch it. It's, uh, it's, a, it's great. But there's a scene in the, in the documentary where this woman named Victoria Cruz goes to a courthouse to watch a case, and there's no one there. There's no one that cares. And there's a man outside who's saying that when, when they were fighting for marriage equality and gay marriage, there were lines all the way down the street. And he's saying people seem to forget about the T and LGBT, and once they got their marriage rights, they just skipped off and they stopped fighting. And it's just unacceptable. So after the 1973 speech that Sylvia gave, which was not taken well at all, by the way, she was booed off the stage. She had people yelling at her, calling her all kinds of slurs, uh, racial and homophobic slurs, uh, by the people at the Gay Rights March. So she had people from the LGBT community saying these horrible things to her. And it's like, if we can't support each other, how do we expect anyone else to support us? She felt very much the same way, and she fell into a horrible depression, had horrible substance abuse issues, and actually credits Marsha to coming to her apartment, picking her up off the floor after she had tried to kill herself. Uh, she had, you know, she was bleeding out from her wrists, and Marsha saved her. I feel like it's such a credit to both of them that they were able to pull through all of this together. I, I can't even imagine not having a support system even within your own community and just feeling like you're isolated from the world even when you see that there are other people just like you who need help and, and you can't get support. So this brings us to Marsha again. Marsha ended up being found dead in the Hudson River right off of Christopher Street 
The police found her body, and they immediately ruled it a suicide. She was 46 years old, and everyone she knew, by all accounts, said that she was not suicidal. She did have a history of some mental health issues and substance abuse problems, but she had a lot of things in her life to look forward to. She was still really excited to help with, you know, achieving all of her goals in terms of gay rights and, and equal rights, and she wouldn't have just killed herself. An eyewitness who saw them pull the body out of the water said that they saw a bullet hole, or a hole, not a bullet hole specifically, but a hole in her skull when they pulled her out, so that's a little bit sketchy. Other people had seen a car full of men driving around picking up sex workers that night, and they saw Marsha get in the car, so people think that that could have been a cause, or sketchy people picking her up, and then she's found dead. It seems a little bit suspicious, I don't know. The fact of the matter is, the police immediately ruled it a suicide and didn't investigate further, and that is a huge problem. There are so many cold cases for trans people, trans women, especially trans women of color, in particular, where they're found dead, or they're murdered, and no one does anything, and people just get a slap on the wrist for it, and that is intolerable. And, and that brings me to my final point about, I want to talk about the gay panic defense law in the United States. For those of you who don't know what that is, and I got all this information from lgbtbar.org, the gay panic defense is a legal strategy that asks a jury to find that a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity is to blame for the defendant's violent reaction, including murder. It's not like a defense by itself, but it can be used as a tactic to bolster other defenses. For example, this was actually used in the Matthew Shepard case, where the men who murdered Matthew said that they didn't know that he was gay, and they said that Matthew tried to hit on them, and it made them so upset that they murdered him. They beat him senseless and tied him to a post and left him for dead, and to give you an idea of how bad of a state he was in. When they tied him to the post, his entire face was covered in blood, and the only part that wasn't was where his tears had made a trail down his face. Which, I don't know, that doesn't check out to me. Um, it can also be used, say, if um, a straight man feels that his sexuality is threatened by a person. Like, say he's flirting with a trans woman and doesn't know that she's trans, and he feels like his sexuality is threatened when he finds out he legally can murder her and get away with it, or at the very least get a heavily reduced sentence in 39 U.S. states, which to me is bananas and fucking crazy and what? So let's talk about that a little bit. This defense originated from this thing called gay panic disorder, which is now an outdated psychological term, but it used to be a valid medical psychological thing where if you panicked because you found out someone was gay, it literally had a medical excuse, basically. This was debunked by the American Psychiatric Association in 1973, but even though the medical field adapted their terminology, uh, the legal field has yet to do that. There are only 11 states where the gay panic defense is illegal. California, Illinois, Rhode Island, Nevada, Connecticut, Maine, Hawaii, New York, New Jersey, Washington, Colorado, and Washington, D.C., which isn't a state, but it's still a legal jurisdiction, so it's great that it's legal there. I think that this is appalling. There are states that currently have legislature in the works to pass to ban the gay panic defense, but the fact that it has not been federally banned is disgusting. 
And I hope to see that change in the next four years. And I will push to see that change. Because we owe it to Marsha. We owe it to all of the trans women, all of the trans people who have been murdered, all of the gay people who have been murdered because of this. And, and their murderers have gotten away with it because of this stupid panic defense. We owe it to our future children, our future generations of people, that it's not acceptable to murder someone because you feel threatened because of their existence, because you're so unsure about yourself, because you're such a coward, really, that someone else's existence and way of life scares you so much that you feel like you have the right to take away their life. And that needs to change, period, point blank. So yeah, that's Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. They're incredibly, incredibly important, and we cannot celebrate pride or the rights that we have without thanking them, without remembering them, and all of the amazing men and women they worked with to make this happen for us. We still have a lot of work to do, clearly, but I feel like we'll get there, and we'll get there together. I figured since we talked about Matthew Shepard and Marsha P. Johnson that we should share their foundations and their pages to help give back. So the Matthew Shepard Foundation is matthewshepard.org. Uh, this is the excerpt from the page about what they do. The Matthew Shepard Foundation's mission is to amplify the story of Matthew Shepard to inspire individuals, organizations, and communities to embrace the dignity and equality of all people. And the Marsha P. Johnson Institute can be found at marshap.org, and their mission is to uplift black trans women. Both Matthew and Marsha's charities are open and still accepting donations and still doing great work to this day, so if you have some money to spare, those are some great places to put your money where you know it'll go to a good use. And please let me know how you like the podcast. I'm still very new to this. This was my first time, so be gentle. But yeah, you can follow me on Instagram at God underscore save underscore the underscore queers. And also this is going to be on Spotify and my interview videos will be on Spotify and YouTube. So I plan to do a video segment for the interviews where I'm with another person. Have a great day, everyone. Stay safe. And uh, we are here. We're queer and we are goddamn pioneers. Have a good one.